Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you have your Bible, you want to turn there. Uh, and my name is Jacob Smith, in case we haven't met, in case you know who I am, which is very understandable. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college teaching director. So normally on Sundays, I'm across the street right over there talking to only college students during this time. Uh, but they all left me uh, for spring break, I hope. Uh, and so I have to talk to someone, so I'm here with you guys. And it's going to be really fun. And I'm very excited. I'm very impressed that all of us have made it out this morning. Uh, Matt Morton, who's speaking over at Southwood this morning, uh, described uh, today in particular as uh, the holy trifecta. Uh, he said that there was spring break, daylight savings, and rain. And he said, well, it's like no one's going to be there. Just, he said, I'm just going to have my family spread out and fill the room. You know, I'm like, Makes us feel more comfortable. But you made it. I'm so excited. I'm so glad that we're all here together. So excited to be over in this place because I'm excited to tell you uh, about a little just nugget of my past life. In fact, I'm going to be completely honest and share with you that I have not been involved in an organized sporting event uh, since eighth grade. Okay, that was my last. I know you're, sh- you're shocked, but I, that was my last time, okay, to be actually be in like an actual organized sport. And in eighth grade, I played football. And in football, uh, I got to learn a lot of things about life, man. A lot of it was learned, especially through the posters hanging up in our junior high locker room uh, that our coaches would quote to us out on the field. They would say things to us to motivate us, right? When we're hot, it's 120 degrees because it's college station summer and you're running around. They would quote these posters and they would tell us things like, hey, Pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> like, okay, that makes no sense. They tell us, hey, nobody ever drowned in sweat. <laughs> Fair. That's probably more accurate than the last statement, right? Okay, I can get on board with that. But my number one quote that I remember is our offensive line coach, who was my coach because I played right guard, which meant I was just on the O-line. I was one of the grunts that just stood up. Did this every play. Uh, He would always yell at us whenever we were pushing the sled, the big metal thing that you like line up and you push it as a group. You're supposed to push it down the field, but I was really bad. And so it would generally just sort of revolve around (laughs) wherever I was standing. Uh, They would always try to put me in the middle just to get rid of me. Uh, But they, we would line up and we'd do these things and he would yell at us while standing on this sled, drinking his iced tea. I can picture him just looking down at us as a grown man, and he would yell at 13-year-old boys, and he would tell us, you all been breathing too much Freon, which in case you didn't know, is a coolant commonly used in air conditioning systems. So our coach thought it was very poor decision-making on our parts to ever use air conditioning, basically is what that means. And so we would be pushing the sled, and he would always call it, he'd say, you're just a bunch of Freon breathers. Right? He would yell that out. That was his number one favorite anti-us term. And we, you know, we were shocked. We were like, I don't know what that means, but I know it's bad. So I'm sorry I failed you, old man that's so much bigger than me. But he would yell these things at us and try to motivate us. And they'd have us pushing the sled. They'd have us running up and down the field. They'd have us running through this big obstacle course where there were all these big metal, old rusty jungle gym and uh, bars and all this stuff. And we would run. And at one point, we were running and jumping up and down off these plyo boxes, these tall, uh, just rusty old metal boxes. And so we would jump up and jump down, jump up and jump down. And then one of those days, one fateful day, I jumped up onto one of the plyo boxes and my foot slipped and my shin 
just caught the edge of that box and it just gashed just this deep, I still have a scar to this day, just this deep gash in my leg. And so I fell off the box, kind of stumbled to the side. I looked down and I realized that there's just blood just pouring down my leg, right? Just creating an ocean of, of it and just sprang, just 30 feet in the disc, just, okay? That's what I remember, okay? Very... Very accurate memory. And so I remember this moment and I'm just looking down. I see that I realize, oh my goodness, like, and I'm feeling lightheaded because I'm already dehydrated and now I'm just losing my inner liquids. And so I'm like, what, what am I going to do? And so I ran to my coach and I tell him, coach, coach, I'm my leg, I'm my leg. I was like, I need to go get it bandaged. Can I go, can I go see the nurse and get my, get my leg bandaged? Please, please coach. And so my coach looked at me, kind of looked at my leg. Looked me right back, right in the eye. Just a, just a little 13-year-old kid. And he said, no! You're going to stay out here with the rest of us. No, you can't. Just get up. Get up. This kind of pushed me to the side. And in, my, in that moment, as he's yelling in my face, and blood is just, poof, I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is how I end. <laughs> This is the final chapter of the tale of Jacob Smith. Right here on these bleachers at my eighth grade football practice, who would have thought this is the moment where I reach my end? This is the moment that I cease to exist. This is going to be the death of me. And many times we have all either had or will be facing that moment of thinking, man, this is, this is it. <laughs> this is the end of me. I cannot overcome this obstacle in front of me. I cannot overcome the situation that I've been confronted with. If you were my little sister, that moment came when you were sitting at home and your husband came in one night and told you, looked at you and your baby daughter and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. I want a divorce. And he left. If you're my wife, that moment might have come when you were in high school and your dad came home from work one day and said, hey, I, I'm losing my job and I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do. You or your brother who's in college, your mom, I don't, I don't know. If you're one of my youth parents last year, that moment maybe comes when you get a call from your son's school, your son is at the new high school, and they call you up and they say, hey, uh, uh, Jake's heart just stopped beating today. And he's dead. The truth is that we live in a dark world. It's not a question of whether or not we will face that darkness. It's a question of how we respond when it comes. When we're reminded of what's really happening out there. No matter what we try to tell ourselves or fool ourselves with or distract ourselves with, when that darkness comes in front of your face, how do you respond? What do you do? All semester over across the street in college, we've been, we've been walking through the life of David. We've been looking at this man who's described by God as a man after his own heart. And we've been studying him and trying to understand what made David the way that he was. Because when I see that he was a man after God's own heart, I want that heart in myself. I want that. I want his heart to be in all of our students. I want that heart for all of you. 
I want us to see what built David, what, what formed him and was his foundation. How was he able to respond to so many different life situations in such an incredible way? And so this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to look at one of the most famous battles of all time. We're going to look at the confrontation between David and a guy named Goliath. And we're looking at it with the goal of understanding how does David respond to darkness? How did David respond in light of the darkness of this world? When we look at David, we often use this story as a way of pepping ourselves up and we look at this big outcome, this great, amazing victory. But let me challenge you this morning to look at it a little bit differently, to approach it from a slightly different angle, not looking at the outcome of this story, instead looking at the outlook, looking at David's inner heart. Because when we look at his heart in this situation, we see that he remembered three things in the face of darkness. He remembered God's greatness, he remembered God's gifts, and he remembered God's grace. The story, story kicks off in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 2 says this, And Saul, who was the king of Israel at that time, and the men of Israel were gathered, and they were encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines, they stood on the mountain on the, uh, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain of the other side with a valley between them. Okay, so we set the stage, and what we see are two armies. The Philistines, boo, and the Israelites, yay, because those are our villains and heroes, okay? Israel has been attacked by the Philistines. The Philistines are just bad, evil people, and they keep trying to invade Israel. So they're encroaching on Israel's land. Saul, the king of Israel at that time, says, no, we got to stop this. So he gathers up the army. They go, and they line up. It's about a mile wide, okay, this valley, and they're just staring at each other, right, just Grimly shaking their spears, and I'm going to break you, right? Just growling and spitting. You know, like they're just doing that, facing off each other across this valley, getting ready to fight. And in the midst of this, right, of the midst of this, like everybody's just, the Philistines decide, hey, we're going to go with this certain direction. We're going to put into practice this tradition that was quite common back in those days where you wouldn't just fight each other, right, army against army. Instead, you would send out a champion. You would designate one man to go out from your midst to go and fight the battle on your behalf. Because it doesn't make sense. If I want to conquer this nation, I don't want to kill every able-bodied man that lives there, right? I want them to still be alive. I just want to rule over them. So instead of being, you know, barbarians about it. Let's just kill, let's just murder one person, right? That was their thought process. Let's, let's be reasonable and just murder one person, okay? That makes a lot more sense. Then we'll go out and play with sheep. I don't know what they did. So they, they have this idea, this goal, okay, of sending out champions. So they pick this one guy who's probably been their champion many times before, a guy that came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Right, so they pick their champion, and man, he is a champion. Goliath, if we kept reading, we'd see that he's covered in about 200 pounds of bronze armor. This guy's about 10 feet tall. Right, this, is a huge, this is a mountain of a man. So imagine me, but like a little bit smaller, okay? That's, that's what we're working with. Goliath just, just coming on out. 
And this guy, man, this is his thing. He knows what's up. He is the champion. He's probably done this times before against other armies. And he's won, right? He's still alive. Therefore, he wins. He's a winner. Which is why he issues this challenge in verse 10. He says, And the Philistine, meaning Goliath, said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. But when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. Goliath goes out and says, Come on, somebody bring it. So Saul and all the other guys, they go, mm, no. And they do this not once, not twice. They do this for 40 days. The Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening, twice a day for 40 days. Goliath comes out, issues this challenge. Someone come fight me. Come on. Here we go. I'll just, I'm not even going to look. Just someone, one hand behind my back, right? He's coming out and mentioning this challenge. Twice a day, every day, 80 times. Simple math. 80 times he comes out, issues this challenge, and yet no one responds. No one responds. Which is especially shocking to us if we've been reading the entirety of 1 Samuel. Because you see, the chapter before this, 1 Samuel 16, we see the selection of David as king. What happens in that story is the prophet at that time, a guy named Samuel, goes to the house of a man named Jesse. And he meets all of Jesse's sons. And he looks at Jesse's sons and he's like, wow, these guys are amazing. And we find out that those three sons, the three oldest that Samuel looked at and was like, this guy should totally be king. And God's like, no, 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 don't, no. They're there. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went, who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. So when we look into the ranks of Israel, we look at all these people that were like, oh, they're just cowardly. They must just be a bunch of weaklings. We look out and we're like, oh, wait, no. There's Eliab and Abinadab and Shema. These guys that we just met a chapter before. That Samuel, God's anointed prophet, would stand in front of him. He saw Eliab and he said, surely, surely this man must be king. Because these are impressive men, man. They're big and strong and just ruddy, handsome. In college, we've basically drawn a parallel between these, these impressive brothers and these guys. <laughs> the Hemsworth brothers. If you don't know who the Hemsworth brothers are, I, I pity you. Because they are involved in some of the greatest movie franchises of right now. Okay, the guy on the left is Liam Hemsworth. He is, plays Gale in all the Hunger Games movies. The guy on the right is Chris Hemsworth. He plays Thor in Thor. I mean, <laughs> come on. These are men among men, right? These are big strap. They're Australian too, so they have cool accents and they can wear V-necks. I mean, what? That's awesome, right? So these are the guys that we're dealing with. These are David's brothers. This is who was lined up with all these big, just, all right, let's go. I'll put a shrimp on the bobby. Like that's, what, that's who's there. And yet Goliath goes forth twice a day for 40 days and they never respond. Never. And suddenly, David shows up. Right, what we see is David's on a cheese run. David has been sent by his dad to the army with some cheese and bread. He's there to bring some food to his brothers. Because it takes a lot to maintain that, right? You need some carbs to keep that going. And so he's bringing the protein shakes and the cheese and whatever things. I don't do that. So he brings all these things. 
And he wants to see his brothers. He wants to talk to his brothers. He doesn't want to just give him cheese. He also wants to talk to him. And so he leaves the things, the bread and cheese, in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold. In other words, in the middle of his conversation, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But here's the kicker. And David heard him. But David heard him. Goliath had been issuing this challenge for 40 days. All these other people heard him. Those Hemsworth boys, they heard him. David's brothers heard him. But they didn't care. They just put their hands in their pockets and they said, well, I'll just smirk instead. Right? Like that's all they're doing. Standing around. But David, David heard Goliath. And it's at that point we're like, oh yeah, here, oh yeah, here we go. Oh man, this is where we get fired up, right? Because from this point on, we see David kind of get some stuff together and he goes out and he kills Goliath. He goes out and he defeats this giant and everyone's like, yay, David. And he wins a bride and half the kingdom and he gets all this amazing stuff because he goes out and he overcomes these overwhelming odds. We know that, we see that outcome and we use this talk as as a pep talk. I was in youth ministry for five years I have seen this talk used as a pump them up, pump them up talk at summer camp or in a youth group or wherever. We use this discussion, we use this story as a way of kind of bolstering ourselves. Like, yeah, like, all right, yeah, let's, let's go, right? Let's go kill our giants. Oh yeah, we can do it, right? And we phrase it, we, I've seen kids being confronted. They're saying, hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, what's your giant, man? What's your giant? Jimmy says, I guess I'm mean to my sister. Oh, Jimmy! We're going to kill that giant, Jimmy! Kill it! Kill it, Jimmy! Kill it! My sister? No! The giant, Jimmy! We're going to kill that giant! With God on our side, Jimmy, we're going to give you some stones, and you're going to kill that giant, Jimmy. And we get so pumped up, we're so excited, we're like, oh yeah, here we go, David, you go kill him. And we get so excited, and we pump ourselves up, But the problem with that is we are so focused on the outcome of this story. We are interpreting it to think that the main idea is that we are supposed to be focused on the outcome, on the victory. But that is entirely misguided because the chapter before, the story right before this is the selection of David as king. Where Samuel goes and sees these impressive men and says, well, surely this is king. God says, no. He says, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. Instead, bring in that shepherd, just that, the youngest, the runt of the litter. Bring him in. That's who's king. Samuel says, why? God says, because I don't look on the outward appearance. That's where man looks. I look inward. I look at the heart. I don't look at all of this external stuff. I look at the internal heart. The whole point is that we are too focused on the external. So why do we approach 1 Samuel 17 entirely focused on the external? Why do we approach it focused on the outcome when instead we should be focused on the outlook that David has? Because if I'm focused on the outcome of this story, if I'm so centered on that victory, I'm missing the point. Eliab 
makes a cameo so that I'll look back. He basically just pops up. David's like, oh, hey, Eliab. He was like, hey. And then he goes away. It's very, very odd unless you realize it's a cameo meant to direct our thoughts back to the previous chapter. Because if I'm so focused on the external situation, if I'm so focused on the outcome, what happens when I go home and I'm still lonely and I'm still depressed? What happens when I go home from summer camp and my parents still get divorced? What happens when I go home and I, I still struggle with that pride or that lust? That jealousy or that anger. What, what happens when that giant won't die? If I'm so focused on that outcome and my giant doesn't die, my outcome doesn't fit with what I want to be, I begin to question God. I begin to ask myself, well, what's God doing? God said, I saw this. And I've seen so many young men and women fall hard. Because they're entirely focused on the outcome. When instead our Bible is clear that we should be worried about our outlook. Even in David's life. Man, God kills Goliath. God abolishes that darkness. But you know what happens right after this? David has to flee from a crazy king. He has to run away into the desert, hide, fearful for his life. He loses everything. He loses his mentor, his friend, his wife, his reputation. He loses everything. And he hides in the desert for years. For years. Those outcomes are very, very different. But what's so amazing is that David's outlook, it's always the same. Through all circumstances, he remembered God's greatness, God's gifts, and God's grace. We see him remember the greatness of God in verse 26. Because as soon as he hears that challenge from Goliath, he turns to the men next to him and he says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's basically turning to his buddies. He's saying, what? Who's this guy? Who's this guy think he is? David's remembering what Israel forgot. David's remembering what we often forget. That our God is huge. That our God is great. That's why David wrote in Psalm 9. Psalm 9, which was what he wrote right after this battle. He says, arise, O Lord. He says, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. When was the last time you prayed that God would overcome a nation? How many of us have been praying for the situation in the Ukraine? How many of us have been praying for those Christians that are being killed in North Korea? Many times we focus our prayers on individual issues or people or problems, and that's good. God wants to relate to us and connect with us and move on a personal, relatable level. 
But let's also not forget that our God is gigantic, that our God is huge. If we forget that, we fall into the same trap that Job did. Job, a man in our scripture who was attacked from all sides, God allowed all this terrible stuff just to happen to Job. He lost his family and his his wealth and his house and his health even. And Job is sitting in the midst of all of that, and yet he's still faithful. To his credit, he does an amazing job of staying true to the Lord. Even when his friends come to him, they say, Job, you really need to give up on that God thing, man. Or Job, you really did something wrong. Or his wife comes to him and says, Job, you, you don't understand the way that God works. Job is faithful until about chapter 37, where he slips and begins to question God. He says, man, God, I, they keep saying these things, and God, I, I'm so focused on these, the situation, the outcome of my life. God, I, I do begin to wonder, are you really, really there? Do you really care? God, are you really, do you really have a plan? God, really? Do you really care? And God comes back to him. Over the next few chapters, 38 through about 40, God comes to Job and he says, he answered Job out of the whirlwind. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Says Job, you better dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? All the sons of God shouted for joy. He goes on and on for chapters saying, Job, where were you when I created the oceans and the mountains and the stars? Job, where were you when I made the universe? Job, I created matter. Do you understand how huge I am? Job, do you have any idea of who I am? I love this because this is the, these are the sassy God chapters of our Bible. You just need to go look at it because it's awesome. God says, Job, Job, you better sit down. Boy, you better dress for action like a man. I don't know what that means, but I want to use it every day now. You better dress for action like a man, Job, because I'm coming at you. I'm going to ask you questions. Job, what's up? Do you have any idea of who I am? Job forgot, and we forget, but David remembered. David remembered that God was so great that even this giant, even this huge 10-foot, 200-pound armor man was nothing, nothing compared to our God. When my sister was sitting at home and her husband came in, uh, she was shocked, shaken, uh, but she called me. She was living in town at the, at the same time, or both of us were here in College Station. So I went to see her, and I, I, I saw her, and, and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what I could say. So I just told her that I was sorry. I was so sorry that I loved her and that I was there if she needed anything. But what really stood out to me in that moment was I will always remember seeing her face and seeing this incredible peace. Just this peace. She looked at me and she said, Jacob, she says, we're going to be okay. She says, we're going to be okay. I've been praying a lot. 
it's not that my sister thought that everything was going to be super awesome and happy and joyful. She knew that she had a terrible, terrible road ahead of her. But she remembered that God was greater than her darkness. So much greater. So much bigger. She remembered what David remembered. But we don't only remember God's greatness. We can remember God's gifts. We see in verse 38 that Saul is clothing David with his armor. Saul put a helmet of bronze. David's head clothed them with a coat of mail. And David strapped Saul's sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. In other words, they didn't really fit him. So then David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. So then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. Now his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. We see that in the midst of that darkness and this this huge threat in front of David, he remembered that God had given him gifts. God had given him practical resources to face that darkness. Saul tries to give David his gifts, right? Saul tries to say, well, hey, here's my armor and my sword and my helmet. And David says, I I can't use those things. No, God has given me something different. David says, God has made me a shepherd. God has given me a sling. God has given me the ability to throw those things. He's given me the ability to use a staff. God has equipped me in unique ways, practical ways that I can face this Darkness. God has given you practical resources to face the, re- the darkness of this world. He's given you your abilities. He's given you his word. And he's given you his people. He's surrounded you, just in this room right now, with like-minded believers who want to pursue the same God that you're pursuing, who have to overcome the same darknesses that you need to overcome. He's given you these people. So use them. Sharpen those abilities. Read that word. Invest in these people. When I was standing before my coach on the precipice of utter destruction, blood everywhere from my leg. I remember thinking, like I said, that, man, this this is it. I'm just going to collapse Tell my parents I love them. Sure wish I could have seen the end of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trilogy, but it's okay. I was really excited about those Star Wars prequels too, but it's all right. Heaven will be better. And in that moment, a guy on my team named Sean came up and grabbed my shoulder. He kind of looked at my leg. He looked at my coach. He'd kind of seen the whole thing unfold. And he was like, man... Coach, let me, just, let me just take him in. Let me help him get in. It's like, come on, Coach. Like, it's, just, it's just Jacob. You know, like, he's fragile. He's like a porcelain doll, Jacob. Hey, you know, come on, let's, let's take it easy on him. The guy is second string B team. I was. I was second string B team. I didn't even, why was I even there? And he's like, look, let me just take him into the nurse. We'll get him bandaged up. I'll take him, Coach. You don't have to worry about it. And my coach relented. He was like, okay, fine. Well, don't breathe too much. Free on when you're in there. All right. And so we walked off and Sean took me in. And in that moment, man, as we were walking, I remember thinking, wow, you know, it's great to have coaches and teachers and parents. It's great to have people above me that can guide me and direct me and pull me along. But oh my goodness, how great is it to have someone actually on my side? How great is it to have someone with me? 
even now I realize how amazing it is that I have a wife who loves the Lord, loves me, that we can fight and, and, and run together. How amazing is it that God's given me fellowship with guys through Bible studies and just life circumstances that I can call or email, text anytime. God has given us incredible gifts that we can use in the face of darkness. So sharpen those abilities. Read that word. Invest with those people. Call them. Email them. Spend time with them. Get coffee. Because bringing those gifts, strengthening those gifts will pay off wonderfully when the darkness comes. But David doesn't just remember God's greatness or God's gifts. He remembers God's grace. Right before the armor thing, he turns to Saul and he says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He says, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered the lamb out of his mouth. But if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David is telling Saul these stories, not just to impress Saul with what had happened. Right? He's not just trying to tell Saul like, well, <laughs> I killed bears, and those things are huge, right? Hundreds of pounds, at least. I don't know. I haven't done bear research recently, but they're really big. David says, not just telling Saul, like, oh, look, I can kill lions. Or look, God killed lions. Wow. Those things are really sharp. He's telling Saul these stories. He's telling him about these events because he's bridging the gap between his past experience and his present expectation. We all use our past experiences to set our present expectations. My wife and I have a wonderful little dog by the name of Parker. And she's about 13 pounds and about yay big. Okay, and Parker is so wonderful, partly because she's very, very smart. And so Parker knows like how to sit and run. And she goes to her cage if I sing a certain song. It's really cool. And so we do these different things, right? We've trained her in these ways. We've taught her how to, you know, interact with the human world. It's foreign to her because she's a dog, but she's getting the hang of it. But Parker cannot understand one very key element of the people world, which is that we live in all of our house, right? That we love all the rooms of our house. Parker knows that we love our bedroom and our kitchen and our, our living room. She knows that and she won't, you know, do certain things in those rooms, like relieve herself, let's say. But we have two guest rooms. And Parker, for whatever reason, assumes in her mind, those are free game. <laughs> and so every time she can find herself alone in those rooms, she's like, all right, here we go. And she, every single time, I don't even think she needs to relieve herself, but she does in those rooms because she's just so, she's like, this is amazing. This is not grass. I love it. Much softer, right? Like she loves going in those rooms. And so we learned, based on that past experience, we have learned to keep those doors shut, right? It looks like we have people like locked away in our house because we always have those doors shut. And people are like, why are those? We're like, don't, don't even ask, right? Shh, quiet. Or you're going to go in there, right? So we, <laughs> we have these doors shut 
people are confused, but we explain, no, like, look, it's because if Parker gets in there, if we leave it open just a crack, right? It still happens to this day. If we just leave the door open a crack, she will push it open with her face and she will then go inside and remind us of why we keep the door closed. Right? She's very faithful <laughs> and she loves us in her own gross way. But we have learned through that experience to change our present expectations. David is saying, I've seen bears and I've seen lions and I've seen God's grace in those moments. Therefore, my present expectation is that God is continuing to be gracious. I know that no matter what happens, my God is gracious. Many of us, hopefully all of us, can look back into our lives and see moments where God has moved and directed and shown grace to us or our friends or our family. We see those moments of grace and those past experiences should change our present expectation. We remember God's grace. Last February, when my youth parents got the call that their son, Jake Simmons, had passed away. Uh, I got a call. And I went and met them at the hospital. And I remember just seeing them across the parking lot and and feeling just sadness and and remorse and pain and, and just even being able to see it in them from a long ways off. And when I got close to them, I I saw primarily just shock. Just shock in their faces. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. So I told them I was sorry and I was there if they needed anything. So they asked me to officiate Jake's funeral. So I worked with him all week. And that shock, man, was there all week as we were figuring out details and service, where it was going to be and how it was going to act and who's going to speak and what's going to happen. And we settled on I was going to share some words about Jake, and then maybe, if she felt up to it, Jake's mom would share as well. And so we, the day came, and we were at Southwood, and just packed auditorium. I got to share about Jake and his, his faith and his impact and his legacy. And I got to step down. I always remember just sitting and praying that God would use the gospel that I just shared. I shared the gospel like three times. Because Jake had so many friends that he was intentionally pursuing who were non-believers that he wanted to bring to faith. And so I made sure to share that gospel, that good news. I shared the fact that Jake Simmons had placed his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I shared the fact that Jake Simmons acknowledged that he was a sinner and that the only salvation, the only way to eternal life was through Jesus Christ. So he trusted in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I shared that. I was praying that God would use it. And I looked up and I saw Jake's mom. And what struck me wasn't only the fact that she was able to share in that moment. What struck me was as soon as I saw her, I saw this incredible peace, this calm that hadn't been there all week. And she got to share about her God and about her son. She shared about how she was so hurt that she had so much pain. But yet in the midst of that pain, she had so much joy. Because thanks to Jesus Christ, she had a relationship with her God. And that thanks to Jesus Christ, her son, Jake, had a relationship 
with God. And she knew that Jake was at that moment sitting in rest and in splendor for all eternity. And that gave her a comfort and a peace that was bigger than that darkness. She remembered in that moment God's grace was greater than her darkness. So I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what struggle or situation you're dealing with. But I know and I try to remember what Jake's mom remembered. That even if you can't look back in your life and be like, oh, God did this and this and this. Even if you can't do that, even if you're so just focused on this darkness, even if you just feel like you're so down that you can't think of any, any event that God orchestrated in your life, you can always look back and see the grace that God provided through his son, Jesus Christ. You can always look back and see the great gift of grace that was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can always look back on John 16, where Jesus told his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but, when you're, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He gives an illustration of when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. Jesus promises us darkness. He promises that you will be confronted with a situation or a struggle that looks like it's your very end. But he promises a life beyond this world. He promises a life beyond this darkness. He promises that even if that outcome doesn't look the way you want to look, even if God won't kill that giant that you so desperately want to die, Christ says, ultimately, you're going to be with me. Ultimately, you focus on that peace. You remember that God is great. You remember God has given you gifts. And you remember that God has poured out so much grace. We're going to sing one more song and the song is called, God, I Look to You. I love it. Tim picked it out because it's this idea of in a broken world, as people who have no hope in and of ourselves, we can look to our God who's always faithful, who's always good. So as we sing these words, I would encourage you, maybe you stand and sing, maybe in the face of whatever darkness you're facing, you just sing to God. Sometimes that's our only response. Or maybe you can just sit in silence and pray to him. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so great and so good and so mighty. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us through the lives of men and women like David. Lord, we just ask that we would be faithful to remember the things that you've done. That, God, we wouldn't just allow this to be knowledge that's packed away, but 
God, let these ideas and stories and psalms sink in. If you would, take a moment just right now and, and pray to the Lord and ask Him to show you where are you failing to remember His greatness or His gifts or His grace. Ask the Lord to show you where could you be trusting in Him better. Where should you be more concerned about your outlook rather than the outcome? Ask the Lord to not only show you where that's happening, but ask the Lord to then strengthen you through His Spirit to remember Him, to remind you through internal conviction, to remind you through a conversation maybe with a friend, someone in your Bible study. Ask the Lord to not only show you where could you be trusting more, but then ask him to empower you to do so. Ask him those things now. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. thank you that we can always look to you, God. We thank you that you are an eternal, everlasting, perfect God. So Lord, let us remember to always look. Because God, you promise us love and grace and mercy. So Lord, remind us to look to you, even in the face of darkness. God, we thank you for being faithful to the faithless. Lord, keep us safe as we travel. Lord, we pray all these things according to your will. Amen. All right, we love you guys. We'll see you in a week. Have a good spring break.